Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we parse this week's tech news. We've got several FUs, a new ultra Ethernet consortium, new firewalls, a new messaging protocol from the IETF, and more. We're sponsored today by Backbox. Backbox is a multi-vendor network automation platform that lets you automate every device on the network through a single pane of glass. It supports network and security devices from 180 different vendors. So, for example, you can execute an OS upgrade across Cisco, Checkpoint, and Palo Alto firewalls with just one click. Get an eval copy and see it for yourself at backbox.com slash packetpushers. And then we've got a Tech Bytes podcast after the news. We're going to talk about traffic replication in a SASE environment. Our sponsor is Palo Alto Networks. They're using a new capability in Prisma Access so you can replicate and store traffic sent to the Prisma Access cloud service. We'll talk about how they do it, some use cases, and more. This is replication, not duplication. That is, they're not load balancing with duplicate flows as a SASE feature, as a SD-WAN feature. This is all traffic that goes into Prisma Access can be replicated and sent somewhere else. For yes, to a storage bucket for mm-hmm. analysis, analysis. Uh, parsing, uh, packet capture, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for deep, you know, secure, high, high integrity security capture for future analysis. So if you ever had to roll back or do an audit or whatever, it's sort of that legal scanning level of data capture and it's a feature that they've done. And they've actually worked with Google to make this happen because they host Prisma Access on the Google Cloud. So they're actually using the underlying hardware to do this. It's an interesting chat to th- and something to think about. Yeah. All right, let's dive into the FU. FU stands for follow-up. Um, we've got a couple of things. First, uh, we had a, a story a couple of shows back where we maybe threw a little shade on telcos and a telco worker wrote in uh, with some comments. I, and I love this line. Greg, I always love your cutting edge sarcasm. Thank you very much. I am absolutely going to adopt that. The cutting edge <laughs> sarcasm when talking about carriers. I work at solutions at a carrier. However, the unfortunate part of this industry is that most of the people we talk to our customers are not full stack. In large corporations, the people we talk to are just merely order places. Uh, I like to use the OSI analogy. Most of the IT staff that interface with telco account teams are not even layer one. And while he says, and, you know, he's trying to be holistic and design the very best solutions for the largest companies in the world, but it takes some will and effort and capability from customers that just never seems to happen. So I think just to read between the lines here, I think the point here is that on a day-to-day basis for very large companies, and large companies distort the market because they represent the bulk of the revenue. It's not the number of customers Mm -hmm. that telcos have, it's the, you know, who spends the most, right? Mm-hmm. And they make purchases on a limited set of criteria, such as dollars per mile per month. So if I'm going to buy a circuit from here to here, I'm going to calculate how much it is dollar per mile per month, compare it against other services on some sort of, you know, find some sort of metric to compare services and then buy the cheapest one. And if you're just a purchasing clerk and that's what you do, you don't care. You know, it could be with Comcast Lumen, who've got the worst reputation for, you know, service and quality. But if you're the purchasing officer, you just buy whatever it is that meets the criteria, right? Because a widget is a widget. If you're buying a ton of steel from company A and a ton of steel from company B, as long as the basic specifications match, it's a ton of steel if you're a purchasing clerk. Uh, mm-hmm. Gosh knows, I've seen it happen where you know the purchasing department goes off and buys a bunch of laptops and you gave them a specification that said 15-inch screen, four hours battery life, and some you know unknown brand that you've never seen before suddenly turns up on the dock and you've got to support those for the next three years. It's that sort of thing. I think that's I think that's real. I think that's a real sounds, you know, that's something to consider. Yeah, I guess I feel like after reading his comments and he also shared some stories about uh, interactions he's had with customers who didn't always necessarily bring their best people to work with the telcos, uh, I do have a little bit more sympathy for all of the travails they have to go through. So 
Yeah, a little bit more sympathy for the talks. Also, I'm, I, you're going to introduce cutting-edge sarcasm into your vocabulary. I'm going to start uh, <laughs> saying that uh, they may not always be playing with a full stack, <laughs> like that, that, that phrasing. <laughs> that's, that's another one. <laughs> I think the interesting thing here, too, is that the telcos are so hard and ugly to work with, maybe we don't put our best people on that. Like, who wants to? <laughs> so maybe they've, maybe they've earned that right. If that makes sense, maybe, maybe. <laughs> it's complicated. It's com you know, it's not that easy. Who really wants to deal with the telco all day when they're not necessarily the most fun or nice people to be around? So, do they deserve it or not? I don't know. That's an open question. But, but thank it. you for the follow up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also talked about uh, Microsoft uh, announcing Entra uh, and changing Azure Active Directory to Entra, and we, uh, I had misunderstood. The rebranding, it's not the Active Directory that lives on-premise, it's Azure Active Directory that's being rebranded Microsoft Entra. Several people wrote in to clarify that, and we appreciate that. Yes. Uh, and also somebody shared a link <laughs> with the differences people. between the two, so yeah. we'll drop that in the show notes. That's also appreciated. Yeah, so it turns out that uh, the people have been basically complaining about the Azure Active Directory because it is not at all the same as the old on-prem Active Directory that was there. And I did a bad job of explaining it, and I probably didn't understand it enough from what we were doing. Um, but also from last week, uh, we talked about Microsoft's Entra, which is their SASE client. I did a reading SSE, of the, not SASE, but yes. SASE, SSE, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I'm going <laughs> to be particular on I'm not going to be particular about it. It's all the same thing. SD-WAN, SASE, SSE, to me, is all the same now. You don't buy one without the other. Um the I went and was reading the uh, documentation on the on the Entra Windows client, which is a client that goes onto your laptop so that it grabs a hold of the traffic and sends it off into the Entra cloud on uh, Microsoft Azure. And it's you know, it's critical what what this client does and what its capabilities are. So here's some things that I noticed: one, it doesn't support IPv6. Huh. DNS over HTTPS must be disabled. Um, that's a problem. Uh, the reason for that is that if you actually get into a lot of Electron apps, so people who are deploying apps, they actually do their own DNS lookups. Like, for example, Facebook. If you deploy a Facebook app onto your phone, you'll find that it uses DNS over HTTPS to use Facebook's DNS servers. It doesn't use your native DNS servers. Mm. Uh, it only supports TCP. So if you have Quick, <laughs> no, you, you get downgraded. <laughs> if you uh, And if you're using Quick, and only quick for the improved security. No, Microsoft doesn't want you doing that. Uh, the client doesn't work if you have a proxy server configured. So, oh. you know, and uh, only uh, single la label domains like, you know, HTTPS slash WACWAC one name, so not a fully qualified domain name. They don't work either. They must be fully qualified domain. Um, I think, you know, we talk a lot about how companies like Microsoft, you know, Microsoft is, you know, really, they've rushed this out. They've got, no functionality, no features, doesn't support some of the things that people expect, I would stay well away from Microsoft Entra for probably three to five years. Uh, let someone else take the pain. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if they're going to ship a client at this level of incompleteness, I think that's pretty poor. Yeah. yeah. Especially IPv6 at this point, when Microsoft has been a supporter of IPv6 uh, for a while now, so why not bring it to the client? I guess yeah, they want to get probably, it out faster, but yeah. They probably implemented a VPN that, you know, they're tunneling over TLS or something like that. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult to solve these other problems. And so they've just been lazy. So instead of going to straight up to a modern, they've just gone and, well, we'll just hack this out and do this and get it out. Yeah, and ship it. That would be a sign that everything else is just hacked together. So uh, to my mind, right? And so you just want to stay away from it because it'll it, you're probably just going to be in a pain for a very long period of time. 
Um, anyway, appreciate the uh, correction on the difference between Active Directory and Azure Active Directory. Uh, and if you ever want to hit us up with a correction comment uh, or anything else, packetpush.net slash FU. We have a couple more FUs to get through. First, we talked about uh, uh, IBM and Red Hat Enterprise Linux and the kerfuffle and the uh, angst they've stirred up in the open source community. And we got somebody writing in to say, basically, they're wondering what the impact is going to be long term for IBM and Red Hat, particularly in the academic market where they're just essentially creating <laughs> bad feelings for folks and folks may decide to eventually migrate away. Well, I think this is uh, one of the hidden things. There's two hidden things going on here. The one that sees uh, from our, from the Packer Pushes Slack channels, you know, he writes in and says he feels that um, what's happening is now that RHEL is a commercial offering, that universities will start to turn away to another distro. And up until now, IBA, Red Hat has been a very popular choice Universities do it as a way of, you know, moving into corporations, preparing their students to run into corporations. Who, so you use RHEL at uni and they use RHEL when you go to market. But if you've now got to sign up for a license and there's restrictions, you can only have 16 copies. If you're an institution you're using it for an educational and there's a whole lot of barriers to jump over, like legal compliance and blah, 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 then people would just go like, ah, I'll just move out. Um, but it, what it also did was it started me thinking about um, if you think about it, like Red Hat writes a lot of code for open source. So it actually has a number of projects that it pays developers to be a part of. So the packaging part of Red Hat, or as I now call it, Red IBM, um, as opposed to Blue IBM. But Red IBM is is could lose a lot of goodwill in the open source community, right? So I, Red Hat actually contributes a lot of open code to open source, but a lot more comes from maintainers across the world. Look at the people doing curl, for example. And those maintainers up until now would have regarded Red Hat as a valuable contributor to the ecosystem. And when they ask for help or they want to see some bugs or, you know, get a patch fix because they're doing support, you know, whatever. And if they uh -huh. didn't have people involved in those projects, they would rely on the maintainers to fix those bugs. And now Red IBM is now starting to be seen as a less pleasant, less desirable, a more optional destination perhaps. And this uh -huh. could see a substantial increase in the costs that Red IBM has to put together as they have to work a lot harder to get support from people that actually have no obligation to help them. So if you were an open source maintainer of a major project and Red IBM suddenly turns up and says, oh, we've just had a customer bug report, you know, and uh, we need to have that, you know, we'd like to get that fixed. You might think to yourself, yeah, okay, I'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Yes, definitely leaking goodwill uh, on Red Hat's part from from the way they've they've handled themselves around Red Hat yeah. and CentOS and so on. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think people do appreciate just how much code Red IBM has. You know, Red Hat, the old Red Hat contributed like entire sure. projects. You know, yeah. they have thousands of developers contributing to various projects across the world that they have on board. Those people are usually employed by Red Hat so that they can fix the bugs, right? So if there's a bug that comes up or an issue that comes up from a customer then Red Hat has a finger in the pie and that person can then, you know, either shepherd a bug through or write the, you know, write a bug fix and then get it, you know, incorporated in. But if Red IBM starts to, you know, the new Red IBM starts to lose its desirability and its reputation as a, as a solid player, maybe open source maintainers go like, ah, you know, whatever, I don't really care. You know, maybe yeah. I'll go and spend more time on the Ubuntu problems than the, than the Red IBM ones. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the community does have some weight uh, here, and it's not just the Linux community. There's lots of other communities associated with it that, mm. that you know, could make life harder for Yeah, and uh, they're not going to uh, be told. Right they're not, they've got no obligation <laughs> to IBM, you know, to those IBM executives who demand to be paid. 
you know, outsized salaries for doing for just taking other people's work and packaging it together. Mm-hmm. Yes, they make contributions, and a lot of those contributions are self-serving. They're not, you know, straight up from the goodness of their hearts. They're self-serving in that yeah. they put people in those projects so they can get bugs fixed and mainlined very quickly. And I think if you blow away your goodwill in an open source project, then you struggle uh, in the long yeah. term. We'll see how it plays out, but whether the blowback on IBM, you know, on Red IBM is is going to happen or not, we'll see. All right, our last FU uh, for this episode, we had talked last week about Intel walking away from the Nook uh, PC, uh, but Nook is not going away. I guess Intel uh, has made an agreement with Asus uh, to transfer that uh, Nook business to Asus. Yeah, this came in and just after the announcement that the Nook was being EOL'd. And uh, so what's actually happened is that Intel has now received a non-exclusive license to Intel's Nook systems. You say Nook, I say Nook, by the way. Um and that will enable it to manufacture and sell 10th to 13th generation NUX system products and develop future designs. And ASUS will be um, providing support and new product continuity for Intel's NUX system customers. So their suggestion here is that ASUS gets some sort of preferential position here and they'll continue to provide support for existing customers. Intel is basically dropping the NUX like a hotcake like, and kicking it down the road. They don't want anything to do with it. But they're finding a way for some customers to be supported by the ASOS NUC BU. Um, I also had somebody write in on the FU. That's packetpushes.net slash FU. The letter F, the letter U. So for follow-up, just FU. Um, and he said that the loss of the NUC, while unfortunate, has a good, there are replacements. He's saying consider almost any of the Protectly, P-R-O-T-E-C-T-L-I appliances. They're about as configurable as a NUC, and they come up with six independent Ethernet ports. Um, I think you'll see a lot of companies here. What I actually expect to see here is that other computer makers will now license the NUC while ASUS has a non-exclusive license. I'm not so sure that Dell and HP will suddenly pop up, not HPE, but HP, um, will suddenly pop up with NUC offerings. But I expect the second tier of makers, you know, Lenovo and so forth, I think the way that Dell and HP are set up, it's just not worth their while to get that sort of thing put together. It's a small market and probably not something that they want to get into. But second-tier server makers will happily roll out, you know, a couple of million and do a run out of a factory and be okay. We'll see. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes. Um, we'll move on to the news portion. And again, thanks for the follow-up. We really like the, the interaction back and forth uh, with listeners. So, you know, keep hitting us up. Yep. Uh, for, let's dive into the news. Uh, a new vendor consortium has emerged to leverage Ethernet for AI and high-performance computing workloads. The new group is called the Ultra Ethernet Consortium. Its founding members are AMD, Arista, Broadcom, Cisco, Avidian, HPE, Intel, Meta, and Microsoft. And at a high level, the Ultra Ethernet Consortium is developing a replacement for Rocky, which is RDMA over Converge Ethernet. Uh, and that replacement is called Ultra Ethernet Transport. Yeah, this was interesting. We've been talking about AI networking for, I don't know, three or four weeks now. And it's the whole purpose here is that RDMA over converged Ethernet or Rocky, as it's short for, isn't in its current form, hasn't really worked, right? Uh, you've got to remember that if you look back over the last few years, you'll remember that storage Ethernet and like storage over Ethernet was something that we'd done for a very, very long time. And IP storage traffic is, you know, just doesn't really work. It works for small networks. But if you're running very large networks at scale, large volumes of elephant flow type traffic just doesn't work. And so you're still seeing companies out there buying fiber channel. Seriously, there's still 5 billion a year of fiber channel moving through the market. People buy mm-hmm. fiber channel adapters and 
fibre channel switches. Broadcom's making a, a, a load of money and the fibre channel market was particularly brought up during the uh, competitive analysis where when it's trying to buy VMware and it's agreed not to you know, do anti-competitive stuff around the fibre channel. Um, so they're talking about addressing specifically low tail latency. The UEC specification offers significant improvements by addressing multipathing and packet spraying. So this is the idea that if you get an elephant flow in a normal switch, when you let's say you've got four, you know, hundred gig uplinks, if you've got a traffic flow that's larger than a hundred gig, well, it would normally flow over the hundred gig, and then congestion would happen. Um, so what you want to be able to do is send the traffic over multiple paths, but also spray the packet flow, that one elephant flow across multiple paths across the network, and that's not something that's um, here today. I mean. The weakness of Ethernet is, is becoming more and more obvious here. There's so little information in the Ethernet packet header that to do packet spraying, you're basically going to have to do it out of band. And so this means then you've got flexible delivery orders. So once you start doing packet spraying, the packet's going to arrive at the other end out of order. They're going to do some adaptation for modern congestion control mechanisms, whatever that is. End-to-end -end telemetry. Well, we've been talking about telemetry in Ethernet networks for, I don't know, 15 years now still don't really have it. It does exist in sort of piecemeal form, but most people don't. But the big thing here is that they're trying to scale up the Ethernet capability to large-scale stability and reliability. So um, particularly what they call out in their document is that they want to reach a design goal of 32,000 AI nodes in a network, uh -huh. whereas today's AI nodes are sort of a couple of hundred in a single network. So they're really looking for sort of like a, a multi-decade sort of strategy here that actually changes things around. Yeah, I, I I think it's interesting. Obviously, you know, AI workloads are a big deal and folks want to use uh, to stay with Ethernet because it's not as expensive as fiber channel or InfiniBand. You have uh, staff on hand who know how to use it. But again, it's not necessarily suitable for the kind of environment, mm -hmm. traffic environment that AI creates. And so they're looking for something better than uh, Rocky. Uh, I'm curious why they decided to sort of start this consortium themselves as opposed to working through an established body like the Ethernet Alliance. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts there. Yeah, the Ethernet Alliance has really become a campus, like the pre-meeting meeting. Have you ever worked for a company that has a pre-meeting meeting, Drew? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A yeah. meeting to talk about what will be happening in the meeting. Yeah, uh -huh. and we won't talk about the whys and wherefores of that sort of thing, but there's a particular thing in big companies um, so this idea that there's a pre there's a pre Ethernet standards body before you take it to the IEEE, uh, the IEEE is basically in, in its Ethernet standards body is fully co opted by vendor interests, and the whole each of the the standards groups there are, are populated by vendors, and there's really n very limited capability for customers to be involved in the IEEE. Um, just the, the the vendor capture of that process is extreme compared to what happens out, say, in the ITF, where at least some normal people are involved in the process, although the vendors are increasingly capturing more of the work in the ITF. When you go and look at the Ethernet Alliance today, they're really just working on campus eth things like campus Ethernet. Remember the 2.5 gig and 5 gig wireless for Ethernet? Uh -huh. uh, and most of their current work there today is around PoE. So again, campus, right? Right. Uh, I didn't really think that power over Ethernet was a thing. I think that that idea is a bit yesterday. Um, and I did some checking and the Automotive Ethernet pre-committee or the pre-meeting meeting for Automotive Ethernet is actually hosted an organization called OpenSIG. So um, I think what you're seeing here is the fact that these people want to do something right now, no, no waiting, 
We're not going to go to the Ethernet Alliance and get them to spin up a new body, you know, a new research group and organize a new arm to focus on this Ethernet. And this is literally a bunch of people who run into each other every day and they've said, we need to do a new thing. You know, they're all there, Arista or whatever. They've got their interests. They want to get some sort of an Ethernet process moving so that they can be selling AI type networking capabilities to the cloud companies. I don't think this right. is an enterprise thing by the end of the year. And that's not going to happen in any other body that's got this established process and pre-review and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, uh, so this this group, the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, is an affiliate of the Linux Foundation. I'm not sure what that means. I, will the specs and software from the UEC be open source or merely open? I, I have questions about that, too. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to talk to somebody at UEC and find out what's happening. Well, the Linux Foundation basically means it gives you a structure and it gives you a legal, very quickly. A legal, yeah. yes, yeah, you don't have to go and set up a foundation and then register it and then find a legal law firm and auditors and all that sort of stuff. You just go to the foundation and say, we're setting up a group. They'll do that for you. It doesn't cost much and it's very quickly. Um, and it also means that there's rules and regulations. So if anybody steps out of line or gets abusive or, you know, if there's some sort of process, then there's some foundation for that, you know. But other than that, it's up to the participants. You know, there. remember when there used to be a foundation starting every other week or every week? Right. And, you know, really it's up to the participants to decide. I think this is a reasonably efficient way to do this, and we'll see what happens. What uh, what I am looking forward to, Drew, is looking for the Mega Hyper Ultra Ethernet <laughs> Consortium to start up sometime in the future when we go into a post-AI world. What do you think? <laughs> well, I noticed that NVIDIA is not listed among the founding members here, so maybe it's up to NVIDIA to start the Ultra Mega Ethernet uh, Consortium down the line. <laughs> they probably will. Uh, <laughs> NVIDIA, of course, is still selling InfiniBand. Around its right. solutions and fiber channel. No, yeah, no, yeah. just InfiniBand. Sorry, just InfiniBand. Yeah. yeah, they do storage yep. over InfiniBand. Um, and if you want to do this, so you don't need fiber channel because you're doing Rocky for the storage RDMA, uh, and they use the DPUs mostly in their AIs to ex not only to accelerate the IP traffic flows, but also to do the storage offloading so that you get high efficiency and throughput. That that idea around the DPUs, I think a lot of the networking companies are still not really into DPUs. Like you don't see Arista or Cisco talking about their DPU strategy. And my best guess is that they're going to work on the switches and try and see if they can solve the problem in the switch because they just don't want to do network adapters, I don't think. Um, yeah. They may have some people working on it just in case something, you know, turns into a thing. But, you know, you've got NVIDIA doing it. You've got AMD doing it. Can they just go and buy somebody else's DPU? Where's the, you know, and there's a whole lot of questions around DPUs that aren't answered. What's the operating system? What are the applications? Where's the APIs? And um, there was the IPU for that's Intel founded the IPU organization, the Intelligent Processor, and started to talk about standardizing some of this. But with Intel pulling out, I wonder, I wonder what happens now with that. Yeah, yeah, lots of things happening. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on uh, the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, but we'll move on. Uh, Arcus, a networking startup, they make a network OS that can run on white box and virtual platforms. They've raised $65 million in a D round of funding, uh, which includes a late edition of Hitachi Ventures, which contributed $15 million to that round. That's according to the website Futurium. Uh, Arcus is going after multi-cloud networking, 5G, and edge markets with its software router and orchestration software. Yeah, and the other major investor is a company called Prosperity 7 Ventures, which is actually uh, the Saudi national wealth company from Aramco. So mm. uh, it's a sovereign investment company, so they put in money as well. So you can focus on Itachi or you can focus on Prosperity 7, but it was also notable that all of the other existing investors also put in. 
So I think this is substantial because we don't talk a lot about white box these days and low cost networking. Arcos is certainly doing that. They're having success and they're still getting a D round of funding. 65 million is a fair amount of money to get for what is largely a software play. Uh-huh. And it will be interesting. Uh, nowadays, they're mostly focused on the telco, the service provider and cloud providers. Right. And that's not to say that you know the high, the tier ones are, but certainly I think they're getting good traction in the tier two, tier three type cloud providers, and there's a lot of those. And they are one of the few companies who's genuinely offering a price advantage compared to you know, the brand vendors have been increasing their prices. Um, and customers are just saying like, sure, we'll just pay whatever you want. So if you're interested in looking at that, maybe that's worthwhile because their big thing is that they're saying we're really shaking up the pricing model. If you start using our white box solution with our telco ready, telco scale product. So I think that's a, you know, there's reasons to be to be hopeful that they're, that they're going to be continuing to do what they do. Yeah, a few years ago, there was a flurry of activity around disaggregation, separating the, the NOS from the hardware uh, that's that's died down a bit. Uh, I think there's still room for network operating system companies, but I think it's going to be hidden within the infrastructure and services provided by like the telcos, the service providers, cloud providers. I don't see this. Uh, I don't see Arcus necessarily as an enterprise play. Uh, and on the enterprise side, I see disaggregation kind of getting swallowed up by multi-cloud networking as a service uh, where the value prop isn't just, oh, we've got a, a software NAS. It's the overlay network that provides the connectivity and networking services on top, uh, which isn't really what Arcus is doing. It's straight up kind of a, we'll sell you our uh, network OS software that, that you can run wherever you want. Well, they're also big into the SDN plot. So they have a whole orchestration tool as well. Right, so, with orchestration. Yep. Yeah, the, the EOS is just one thing. That's just the lower cost part. That's the part that saves you money. But they do have an orchestration tool that integrates with a wide range of third parties. And I think ultimately the story of networking for the next decade isn't about ASICs or switches or NOSs. I think it's all about the SDN, you know, the controllers. Yes. Things like, yep. you know, mist on the campus and, you know, what are you doing to orchestrate it? Like fabric system services on Nokia for the data center. And how how much can you operate? How much telemetry do you get for your money? How much visibility? How much does the model save you money by doing less configuration and so forth? Does it does it intelligently flag you that there's errors in the network? That sort of thing. Yeah. I guess my larger point was that folks listening to this podcast probably aren't going to be going out buying Arcus, but they may be using a service from a telco or an ISP that is using Arcus. Uh, so it's kind of hidden hidden away inside the infrastructure oh, yeah. well, uh, for how most people will consume it. Yes, and I think they're having success because telcos really are focused on cutting costs because yep. they, they don't have services anymore and they're giving up on those services. Thank goodness. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Fortinet has announced two new firewall models uh, targeting hyperscaler and data center networks. First up, the Fortigate uh, 3201F is for the hyperscale market. It promises 387 gigabits throughput, firewall performance, 70 million concurrent sessions, and 800,000 connections per second. It also includes four 400 gig ports. Uh, next is the Fortigate 901 for the enterprise data center. It offers 164 gigabits per second firewall throughput. Can support 55 gigabits per second IPsec VPN and 16 million concurrent sessions. Yeah, so this is an application firewall, and they're actually giving you the numbers breakdown for each of the different performance levels. So, just because it can forward packets at nearly 400 gigabits per second, that's quite unusual. Uh, but it can only do 30 gigabits per second of SSL inspection. That's still an astonishingly large amount of SSL inspection. Uh, and it can do threat protection at 45 gigabits per second. Um, at the end of the day, I think 40 gigabits still has, and I think we've said this before, there's two things I think. One is people are still buying big physical firewalls. We talk about cloud and scalability and 
you know, we've talked about cloud networking, you know, multi-cloud networking tools or network uh-huh. as a service, and they have horizontally scalable firewalls, but there's still a need for one big physical firewall. And FortiGate is actually one of the companies that can really scale up through their ASIC. They actually have a custom ASIC that they can bring to market and accelerate. Two custom ASICs, actually, yep. Well, yes, that's... Oh, okay. All right. Split hairs, then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I rarely get a chance to split hairs with you, so I'm taking it. All right. You take it. Yeah, you can put that one <laughs> I'm taking there. it. Yeah, you that. Yeah, I like the Fortinet uh, always reports performance numbers with multiple functions activated. So, for example, on that 901 firewall, uh, in firewall only mode, it's 164 gigabits per second. But if you also turn on IPS, anti-malware, application control, and logging, that throughput goes down to 20 gigabits per second, hmm. which is normal. If you turn on more functions, it's going to you know affect your throughput. <laughs> I like the fact that Fortinet is upfront about that. Yeah, and I think, well, at the end of the day, we have to be. That was one of the challenges uh, when I was dealing with uh, Cisco products. <laughs> they didn't know, and they couldn't yeah. tell you. Um, just, you know, just try and see what happens and get back and, to us. Yeah, that's right, and that's extremely frustrating because you don't, you're trying to spend money and you're trying to meet SLAs, and there was no uh-huh. way to know that. It, and it was very um, distressing to sit in front of a meeting with a CEO or a board of, you know, or a, a team, and they say, well, will this meet the performance goals? And you just put your hand in the air and say... No idea. Not a good look. Very unprofessional. Very unprofessional. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Backbox. Backbox is a network automation platform. It supports network and security devices from over 180 vendors. It's got thousands of pre-built automations and a scripting-free way to build new ones. With Backbox, any task that could be performed manually on any device on the network, regardless of vendor, can be automated. They've got intelligent conditional automations to streamline tasks that once took several steps to perform, for example, verifying available storage space on devices before you start your OS upgrade. It's built from the ground up as a multi-tenant solution. It's got role-based administration and a REST API. It's a powerful, scalable network automation solution, and it's got award-winning customer support so you're never on your own. See why businesses and service providers worldwide trust Backbox to automate critical tasks over 100,000 networks. You can get a free evaluation copy of the software at backbox.com slash packetpushers. That's backbox, all one word, dot com slash packetpushers. All right, back to the news. A tech giant Huawei has announced the royalty rates for its patent licensing program, including patents related to 4G, 5G, Wi-Fi, and IoT. The company also reaffirmed its commitment to licensing its standard essential patents under FRAND principles, FRAND stands for Fair, Reasonable, and Non-Discriminatory. Yeah, I uh, one of the things that I keep mentioning here, but I don't see this mentioned in the mainstream press, is that Huawei has a huge patent portfolio in wireless mm-hmm. networking, 5G, 5.5G, but also in audio and video codecs. And these patents have been included in various standards. You'll find Huawei is um, very engaged in standard, trying to get its patents put in so that it can get its patent portfolio up to a value and then what actually happens is that companies like Huawei has a patent portfolio. So when they want to license somebody else's technologies, they say, well, we'll just, your patents nullify my patents. Right, you know do I mean, a swap. Right? Yep. Do a swap, mm-hmm. you know, and we agree not to charge each other and there's this sort of thing. So I did a digging into um, Huawei's financial results. In the last 10 years, Huawei has spent $136 billion on R&D investment over the last 10 wow. years. That is an astonishing amount. That is far more than I think almost any um, brand vendor has done. And just to give you some comparison, in 2022, its R&D expenditure was $22 billion, or nearly 25% of its revenue. That is five to eight times what we see from traditional vendors on R&D. Um, so 
if you ever think that this is a bit, if that upsets you because of, you know, geopolitics and what the Chinese government is doing, they certainly appear to be. Now, then there's plenty of accounting tricks here which can make R&D, but let's take it a prima facie, take it at face value. Um, that is a lot of money to be spending in research and development for standards, for codex, for encoding, for, you know, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting. So, hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and the investments paying off, I looked up who were the biggest global patent holders, uh, and in 2022, Huawei came in fourth place uh, globally uh, for the most, uh, for companies with the most patents awarded. Uh, Samsung was one, IBM was two, TSMC was three, uh, and Huawei in fourth place for most patents awarded in 2022. So yes, building a huge patent war chest, uh, and then they can leverage that in a variety of ways. Get you to pay for them or use them as a you know trading cards mm-hmm. when you're partnering. Yep. Yeah, there was a you know this is also flies in the face of accusations that China just copies everything. This is one of the things that Huawei has done at least is to contribute. Right, they're contributing patents and and technology to standards, and it's being accepted by standards bodies. Now, if you've got a problem with that, you have to take it up with the standards bodies. Yes, and frankly, also, I think should demonstrate to U.S. companies the value of investing in straight uh, research, just basic research, which I think we've in in a lot of ways given up on. IBM, (laughs) I guess not, because that's one of their core... startups is not research and development. Right, (laughs) definitely not. Yes, exactly. So maybe we should be doing more of that. All right, uh, two more stories before we wrap. Uh, First, the IETF has published the core specification for the Messaging Layer Security Protocol, or MLS, as an RFC. Uh, MLS provides an interoperable specification for messaging apps to set up encryption keys to authenticate and encrypt group communications like text, chats, or videos. Yeah, so one of the challenges with all of the messaging systems that we have today is that they don't communicate. So just imagine if, uh, you know, today you have Gmail and I'm sending you uh, an, an Apple email or, you know, wherever... They all interoperate. Just imagine if I could only send Gmail email to other Gmail customers and no one else. And that's right. where we are with Slack messaging or Zoom messaging or, you know. Or text messaging on different phone platforms, text, I think, yeah, is exactly. the big one. So SMS yep. becomes the default and that's actually not using text, it's not using IP at all. Um, and so this MLS is a, it's a bit skinny at this particular point in time, but it provides a, a framework so that, and it's pretty limited in its functionality, but it's interoperable. And the idea is, is that you should be able to create a group of people to send messages together with or without a central server. And this is the unique part. So if you actually yep. know the person you want to talk to, you can add them into a group without having a central server like Twitter or, you know, Threads or, you know, Reddit. And this disaggregates all of this. And I think also what it's defining here is a set of basic protocol connectivity so that if you wanted to exchange messages between Twitter and Mastodon, it doesn't have to use the Fediverse. It can just use an alternate protocol like this. It's secure, uh, end-to-end encrypted, uh, and it can be completely abstract if users are able to distribute credentials and messages without relying on a central delivery service. So that is the client itself can also do all of the things that's necessary to establish end-to-end encryption. Yeah. Uh, the ITF says MLS is already available or will be deployed soon by companies including AWS, Cisco, Meta, Mozilla, and Cloudflare. So it is getting traction. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes because we've got to get away from this uh, messaging thing where it's in an island. And, you know, once you're locked into this ecosystem, you know, look at what uh, Twitter's going through at the moment. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe I just want to, I don't want to leave Twitter, but I still want to communicate with people who are on Twitter. You know, I want to have a way to communicate across the board here. 
And whether this will get up or not, who knows? But it is usable end-to-end encryption. And I've collected a bunch of links here to the IETF documents to try and give you some insights into how it works. Uh, also on Mozilla's blog, a bit of an article, a bit of a fluff piece that you can send to your boss and say, boss, why don't you ask your vendors when they're going to support this? Yes. All right, our last story for the day, uh, Kevin Mitnick, who was one of the first hackers to gain public notoriety, has died at the age of 59 of pancreatic cancer. Uh, you're probably are familiar with his history. He cut his teeth exploring telephone networks and became one of the first celebrities of the InfoSec world. Uh, he specialized in social engineering, wrote several books on hacking and deception, uh, and co-founded a security consulting firm. Yeah, I always have mixed feelings here um, about criminals who do something and then turn themselves into celebrities. Now, at the end of the day, he served his time uh, when he was convicted, and he was he did go to jail. Yep, did mm-hmm. go to jail. And he re- rehabilitated, which is an inspiring story. And he did go on to become a minor celebrity, and perhaps even did quite some good around raising profile for cybersecurity in in the world. But uh, and I also definitely know that pancreatic cancer, having experienced it in my in my family, is a is a not not a good way to die. Uh, it's mm. it's very slow, very painful. But uh, let's not overdo this um, celebrating somebody who actually made people's lives very miserable. During the time that he was performing criminal acts, he loaded a lot of problems onto people before he was um, no longer able to do those things. Um, and I also just want to express a piece of you know, thing here. Just because people with public profiles, um, I don't think we want to celebrate some, always want to celebrate them. Just because you're in public doesn't mean you're superior or better. You're just public. That applies to me, by the way. So, yeah, he's definitely a polarizing figure. He, I think, he kind of embodied that, you know, hacker mythos uh, of folks who inhabit the sort of murky boundaries where uh, it's curiosity, it's exploration, and it's illegal. Uh, yeah. So there, yeah. there's a lot of intersections there. Yeah, well, um, I think that as a society we should do less celebration of illegality and immoral behavior. Like, you know, oh, he got away with it. You know, we shouldn't. Yes, okay, you can say that, but don't say it out loud. You know, <laughs> it is kind of <laughs> fun to look at people spitting in the eye of the of the system. To some sure, we're always fascinated by outlaws, always, always yes. have been, always will be. Yeah. Yep. But I don't think that celebrating it is necessarily so. Absolutely, the you know he was a so he's a as they as they say in the press releases and and the articles I read, he's a polarizing figure, and so yes, I'm polarized. I can see the good <laughs> and the bad. Yes. I remember fierce debates uh, in the InfoSec community around the time he was sort of most well-known, like, you know, would you hire someone who has a criminal record to, to do your security? Uh, you know, to, for, as a security company, would you hire someone who, who has a criminal record? And th- there's arguments on both sides, and I think those arguments will be with us uh, forever. <laughs> Once you transgress the rules of society, it's very hard to come back in. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Anyway, there's a link to uh, the, the register has a nice uh, obituary for him. Uh, we'll link in the show notes. Uh, that does wrap up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation. We're going to be talking with the Palo Alto Networks on their new traffic replication capabilities and Prisma Access. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk about traffic replication in SASE environments. Our sponsor is Palo Alto Networks, and they've added a new capability in Prisma Access that lets you replicate and then store traffic sent to the Prisma Access cloud service. And that replicated traffic can then be used for things like deep packet analysis, forensic, or network analysis. We're going to talk about how Prisma Access replicates traffic. We'll get into use cases and more. Our guest is Tudor Andrescu. He's the product line manager at Palo Alto Networks. Uh, Tudor, welcome to the podcast. So what is traffic replication and, and why would someone need it? What are some of the benefits or business outcomes associated with doing traffic replication? 
So this is a brand new function that we built in Prisma Access. Uh, think about legacy architectures where it's, it's very common for customers to have uh, parallel infrastructures, something like packet brokers, pen ports, yep. tap ports, uh, that would allow customers in the older le legacy architectures to take a copy of the traffic and do parallel and post-mortem analysis for, for different use cases. Um, uh, this is great and very doable in on-prem deployments, but think about now uh, with uh, all the things moving around, right? Your user is in a coffee shop, your security stack when you adopt SAS, it moves into the cloud, your applications are moving or are already in the cloud, right? So good luck trying to, to get your hand on a, a PCAP like you were so used to do before. So what we're trying to, to do in Prisma Access is to bring back that full deep visibility that uh, many customers of ours were so used to, to, to have on, in on-prem environments and uh, kind of remove any trade-offs when they move from an on-prem deployment to, to a SASE architecture, which of course we all know have so many benefits. <laughs> so does this work for when you just have a device in the pathway? So if you have some sort of a Palo Alto hardware appliance, or as we see in the remote access, we see the agents increasingly becoming a popular way of, of setting the edge of the SD-WAN. So this, this function is being built in Prisma Access. So it's a very sweet spot, right? We are uh, always in between the users and the apps, mm -hmm. uh, rather they're SaaS applications, internet or right. private apps. Right? Okay. Yeah. So Prisma Access is your cloud service and I send my traffic in and then what you're saying is you can replicate it and then I can do something else with that traffic. Yeah, I make available to you a copy of the traffic that Prisma Access sees in the cloud. Yeah. Right. So I, I, my first question is, I guess, if I'm already sending my traffic to Prisma Access for things like security inspection, performance monitoring, why would I want to replicate that traffic as well? Oh, that's that's a great question, right? So um, think about, I'll just throw a couple of examples, right? You, you might... Uh, uh, detect something, right? Let's say Prisma Access is blocking some some C2 attempt, uh, but you want to see, okay, uh, that's great, I blocked it at this stage, but how that host maybe internally uh, got compromised in the first place, right? Uh, could be maybe I have a policy that's being shadowed, um, some other uh, interesting scenarios there. So uh, having a copy of all the traffic uh, post-mortem, right, gives me the, the full power to analyze uh, all the uh, flows, right, of an attack mm -hmm. going back in time and making sure next time it happens, right, in a far, I'm in a far better spot. Okay, and this is all happening because uh, I guess you're taking advantage of a feature in Google Cloud where you're hosting the Prisma Access services? Yes, so uh, uh, that's an, another really uh, good point to to call Prisma Access a, a native uh, cloud solution, right? We we are being hosted in AWS and GCP. There's no secret there, and we take full advantage of of these uh, cloud providers, right? And GCP is a great example. Uh, why is that important in this case, right? Uh, obviously, to store a copy of this traffic, we talk about a huge amount of traffic for, for largest customers and their business locations. So the ability to scale elastically uh, right away, uh, that, that's key. And GCP enables us to, to do that quite easily. Right. GCP that has the, the traffic uh, replication capability that you're essentially turning on on behalf of customers? 
Behind the scenes, yes, we are using uh, yeah. functions like GCP mirroring, but we add on top of that, right? Um, yeah, and that's a scaling. I see that as a scaling. You couldn't scale this by doing it in software on top of, you know, in a container or something like that. You really need to use hardware features almost, and that's the feature that uh, comes from the underlying cloud infrastructure that you've got. Absolutely. Yeah, that, yep. that was a key requirement not to by turning this on, not to affect mm. the, the inline performance by any way. So mm. make this mirroring happening outside of our service processing nodes in Prisma Access. So your uh, regular inspection is not affected at all. And what about encrypted traffic? How are you doing? How are you handling that? So we give the option to the customer, right? They can, uh, in the copy of the traffic that they get, they they are able to get either original traffic, right? Which is most of the time encrypted, but we also offer to, to apply SSL decryption to, to such traffic. And this is key for, for uh, right, forensic analysis. Um, very often, right, you want to go deep and uh, decrypting is, is key. Okay, so I can set it up so that when the traffic is decrypted in Prisma Access already for some kind of DPI or other inspection, that decrypted traffic gets mirrored and then stored uh, on this, uh, whatever system Google is using that I get access to, to, to grab those packets. That's correct, yes. We, we, we know about the keys, right? We in, intercept the sessions already inline, so we apply the same decryption for, for the copy that we store out of band here. Got it. Well, that leads me into a question around data sovereignty. You have a lot of a lot of political and government um, interest in where the data resides and who gets access to it. Have you addressed those issues? Yeah, this, this was a key point, right? When we developed that, uh, so uh, the storing, right? Uh, the storing of this uh, traffic, right? It's being done in in storage buckets, and uh, we have uh, will we will have a bucket in every single Prism Access location, right? So if your traffic it's already managed and inspected by a Prism Access location, uh, getting this copy it won't move anywhere else. It's gonna stay in the same place, right? And uh, in terms of who has access to to this, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Since we are gonna store data at rest. Um, we are following very strict policies, uh, GCP and AWS best practices. And if, mm. on top of that, we even do an uh, encryption of those pickups, right? And only the, the customer would have a private key to. to so create. the basic controls are in place and customers should talk to you about specific controls. So if, if they only want to see that data in a particular location, they should talk to you about that because you thought about that in the design, I think is the takeaway. Absolutely. And we, in fact, it's it's fully controlled by, by the customer. They, they, we, mm. we, all, uh, we put things in the GUI that would enable them to, to fully control where the data is being stored. Yeah. So is this sort of an all or nothing feature where um, if I flip on traffic replication, I get all the traffic or can I be more selective? Like I only want Office 365 traffic or I only want traffic from one user or something. How fine grain can I make this? Got it. Um, the, the core use case that we're trying to solve, it's typically for customers who they say, I don't know what I don't know, <laughs> what I will do later. Uh -huh. So for now, we are copying everything okay. and then you can filter whatever you, you want further. But uh, that's something that we are uh, considering strongly, right? We have a lot of context, who the user is, right. your apps, like in your question, right? Uh, so that's something that is very doable. Okay, so right now you, it's it's the whole enchilada, so to speak, uh, when you turn this feature on. But over time, you you anticipate being able to be more selective about what gets mirrored or replicated. Correct. Okay. 
That would be important because so many CIOs and CEOs need monitoring these days. It seems like every CEO <laughs> specializes in doing something they really shouldn't be. Um, speaking of which, if, if I'm a customer of this product, how do I take this data and turn it into something meaningful? Is Prisma Access giving me the ability to analyze that data and to do queries on it, or do I feed it into something else? Um, I guess it's it's a spectrum of, of answers, right? We, we we work with customers who will take this this uh, copy of the traffic that we made available, and they have their own uh, internal tools that will do the analysis they need. Uh, but very often we have uh, other tools, third-party tools on the other end, on the receiving end of this traffic, uh, typically in the NDR space. Uh, I guess yeah. these are public names. We, for now, we work with um, people like NetWitness and Corelight. These are publicly announced partnerships we have. Mm-hmm. What's What's great about that, it's uh, in these partnerships for the end customer, it's going to be a fully transparent experience. Uh, either they uh, get these uh, traffic from a physical tap port or they use Prisma Access, they can freely continue to use these uh, preferred yeah. third-party tools. So you could yeah. still use third-party tools and then and then use the Prisma Access data and then combine it in other some other tool. We're seeing a lot of AI analytics or ML analytics tools being, but once you've got the data, then you can move to the next phase. If you can't collect the data, you, it doesn't matter what analytic tool you've got. Absolutely, yeah. It's- right. Which brings me to data integrity. A lot of the times at this sort of volume, you'd need to do packet sampling. I suspect because you've got some sort of partnership with Google Cloud, that this is going to be the answer that people probably want to hear. But tell me anyway. Yeah, great question. Uh, Again, coming back to the the core use cases we try to solve and uh, forensic and threat hunting is key. In these cases, right, I want to see everything. So we don't do any sampling. We captured every single packet. Uh, and yeah, Google and AWS as well, right, are, are key in making sure we can scale at the required volumes here. Yeah. I get, you know, it has to be done at hardware for the sort of scale. Like Prisma Access isn't like a couple of hundred megs. So you're talking about hundreds of gigabytes of traffic, not, you know, not gigabits, gigabytes of traffic per second flowing through the Prisma Access. So you're not going to be able to do this without working closely with your cloud provider. Because otherwise you you have to have that integrity about the data. You need to know, if, as you say, for threat hunting or, uh, you know, forensic analysis, you need to know. Absolutely, right. And when you uh, mix things like SSL decryption, et cetera, right, uh, scaling is, is, uh, becomes key. So is uh, given the potential volume of traffic that I may, might be uh, replicating and storing, is that something that I work out with Google or do I do that through you in terms of how much uh, storage space I want to set up, how long I want to keep it and so on? How, how does that get all hashed out? So uh, we offer this as a service, right? So um, practically we are storing these uh, copy of the traffic in, in uh, GCP buckets all over the world. Mm-hmm. The buckets belong to us, so you don't have to, to deal with that. Okay, right? I don't have uh, to provision those buckets and, and watch them and so on. You've taken care of that for me? Correct. We'll, we'll share read access into those buckets securely, so you can take it from there. Uh, and in terms of how long I can store it, is that also up to me, or are there limits? You know, like am I looking at like a 30-day window or 90-day window or just forever? Uh, for now, it's we call it short-term storage. It's a kind of a fixed 72 hours. So you have three days to read those files from okay. our bucket. Uh, mm-hmm. But then it's a regular bucket. So any regular interactions with the GCP and AWS bucket, it's it's available. So we can move it to a so cold customer. Store. A customer mm-hmm. could take it and move it themselves and store it in their own infrastructure Absolutely. Yep. under their own pricing, more importantly. Right. Because storage. <laughs> that, movement, that movement's where they're going to get you, yes. 
The thing about this that I is just I haven't heard this from other vendors. So lots of other vendors have SASE you know, or SSE, however you want to call it, where you know you send your data into the cloud and they do the inspection, the security, the logging, and so forth. But I've not heard them just make the raw data available. Is there a particular? Is there something uh, Palo Alto Networks is doing here that's unique and differentiated? Yeah, you're right. So far, we haven't heard from other competitors uh, doing anything close to this. I believe we have a huge advantage in how Prisma Access is architectured from from the start. We have one. We are sitting in these public clouds uh, where wide scale and and the functions are are uh, very elastic, right, and gives us all this power. Second, we we uh, have a dedicated data plane for each and every customer we have, right. So the traffic it's already separated so taking a copy of a specific customer under specific conditions is quite easy for us uh, if i would have used a, a shared environment right with the private data centers things might be far tweakier even integrating with third parties right uh, if i'm yeah. in a private data center right the other side needs to be close to me ideally right so yeah yeah, yeah. So this means things like traffic replication between sites or if you're replicating traffic over the prisma capabilities, it's all there. It's not lost. Yeah, absolutely. Palo Alto Networks put out an official announcement about that. In that announcement, they said uh, it was just in Google Cloud, but you mentioned also that you have, uh, you're also in AWS. Is this right now only a feature for Prisma Access instances in Google? And will you add other cloud providers? That's correct. For now, this function is supported in, in uh, Prisma Access locations where GCP hosted. Uh, AWS, again, I'm don't want to go into roadmap items, but it's sure. it's uh, something we're mm. strongly looking at. Yeah. Okay. So presumably then if I'm the customer, uh, I would know that uh, my Prisma is in a, a GCP, uh, is hosted in GCP because this capability will pop up in my dashboards being available. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we'll present, right, the locations which are available today. And once we have support for AWS, right, those would be added as well. And I guess if anybody wants to find out more information, they can contact you and ask for details about the roadmap and in quietly, not so not such a public setting. Um, if, is there any last things that you want to touch on before we wrap this up for today? Yeah, I, I just want to highlight that this is a very uh, unique and strong and powerful function, not by what it does, right? In fact, it it's, I could say it's just offering you a copy of the traffic, but it's very powerful uh, looking at the use cases that it, it unblocks, right? If you are mm. strong on forensic analysis, threat hunting, deep uh, packet analysis for, for networking use cases. Performance uh, monitoring. Or, Validation, Absolutely. you know, you know, content validation and all that sort of stuff. Because building a packet broker network was the way we used to do this. We used to go out and put network taps and have appliances all around the network to collect all this data, and then it would ship it all into a central core and then correlate it into a single. People can't, you can't build that now. Well, you can still build it. You can go out and buy packet broking tools, but you know, you're not going to put edge? a packet broker in Google's cloud. That's not happening. No. Well, you're also not going to put one in, you know, when you've got a thousand remote users out right. of a two thousand strong workforce, right? Yeah. So it becomes a different sort of a thing. Yeah. So it's a very modern solution to modern problems, at the risk of sounding trite. Absolutely, yeah. 
All right. Well, that does bring us to the end uh, of this recording. Uh, if you want to get more details about uh, this traffic replication capability uh, in Prisma Access, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes uh, to take you right there, or you can go to paloaltonetworks.com and just uh, search for traffic replication. Uh, thank you, Tudor, for joining us, and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor, uh, and especially thank you for listening. Uh, head on over to packetpushers.net. You can find a plethora of free technical podcasts on networking, cloud, wireless, Kubernetes, and more, along with our community blog. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn here us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.